Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. In a few minutes, you'll be hearing an episode with Todd Keeslin. This is actually a time when Brennan and I thought it would be best for us to voice our opinions that everyone listens to this show, everyone that follows our review platform, Deadhead Reviews, understands our firm stance. So we'll start out with, uh, with my statement, then it'll be Brennan. When I took over Deadhead Reviews, I had the same plans for that as I did when I began my podcast show, Deadhead Space, to entertain and learn as much about the writing community and its creators as I could. However, the murder of George Floyd has opened my eyes, truly. Up until that point, even though I was aware of my white privilege, it never hit as hard until that unjust murder. I'm very aware that I am in a position where I have a voice. I'm a cis straight white male that has a platform, so I'm going to use all of that to do everything I can to educate as many other ignorant white people. Because that is where I believe this problem lies. Amongst the well-intentioned ignorant and the not-so-well-meaning white race, the Black Lives Matter movement has swept me away in its message. It's a powerful one. It's one that I fully support. So I will do everything I can to spotlight creators of color, black creators, any and all that are within the LGBTQ plus community, Native Americans, and any other marginalized race. I do not stand by anyone who condones racism, bigotry, or hate. I do not stand by anyone who takes any of that lightly, and I certainly will not promote anyone who falls under those categories. Thank you for listening. Now Brennan has his statement. Uh, Thanks, Patrick. Being a member of the Deadhead team, it's been an eye-opening experience. I've been exposed to authors and books that I wouldn't have otherwise known about. I've spent a great deal of time in the last year focusing on independent authors over mainstream ones, and now it's time to continue that positive work and amplify even more voices within our community. As a straight white male, I recognize that I have a lot to learn. I commit to combating that ignorance by listening and making concentrated efforts to read and promote marginalized voices on a regular basis. This includes, but is certainly not limited to, the works of people of color, women, queer, and trans authors. Part of this commitment is also using the platform that I have, both on social media and on this podcast, to speak out against inequality and injustice. Silence is complicity, and I don't see it as an option anymore. The events set in motion by the murder of George Floyd by the Minneapolis police have left me angry, sad, scared, frustrated, but oddly hopeful. I am proud to stand with Deadhead Reviews and the Deadhead Space podcast in proclaiming our support for the Black Lives Matter movement. Thank you guys for taking the four or five minutes to listen to this before the episode starts, and let's cue the music.
Thank you for joining us today at Dead Headspace. I am your host, Patrick R. McDonough, here with my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Hello. And we got Todd Kiesland. Hi. And uh, we're kind of diving into a lot of things. Devil, Devil's Creek will be one of them. So normally what we do is uh, we ask what got you started in horror, but... I think given current events specifically because I saw you mention something on Twitter um, where Sadie Mother Horror, Sadie Hartman addressed something that it's kind of confusing. And I agree with her. I hope she's OK with me dropping her name like that. But um, she kind of said, I don't know what the right thing to do is. If I do this, someone says that's wrong. If I do the opposite, someone says that's wrong. You gave great advice, which was follow your heart. Um, that's perfect advice and a lot of things as well uh i just want to know how you're how you're handling it how you're doing right now uh well you know i think like like a lot of people in america and well hell even around the world given the the global protests that are happening uh i'm concerned i'm scared um i'm angry i'm extremely angry uh it is disgusting to me the level of racism that is going on in this country right now and you know that's something that i grew up around uh i grew up in southeastern kentucky i'll get into that you know i'm sure in over the course of our conversation today uh but right now uh you know, I would say it boils down to those three things. I'm concerned, I'm scared, and I'm very angry. Uh, this isn't this isn't the country that I grew up, you know, being taught was the greatest country on earth. Uh, I'm sure that some of the right wing extremists who are, you know, might be listening. I don't know if you curry to the right wing crowd. I doubt it. <laughs> I, <think so>. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they could understand what a podcast is um i uh i i think that you know they would probably not like that very much but you know this is very clearly there is definitely something rotten in the state of denmark right now uh it has been for a long time and i would say that you know our current president of law and order as he calls himself uh, is only stoking the flames of a fire that's eventually going to spread and, and, you know, in worst case scenario, you know, char everything in his path. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of where I, I'm, I'm my current state of mind. Uh, you know, I'm worried for my family. I'm worried for my friends. I'm worried for my friends who are out there on the streets right now protesting and, you know, I'm trying to do what I can from here because I can't be on the streets protesting, unfortunately. Uh, you know, I'm not rich by any means, but, you know, I've, I've given money to the bail funds. Uh, I think that protesters, especially right now, who are being arrested uh, for doing their civil duty, uh, wrongfully arrested, I think they need the support and I think that donating to bail funds is, you know, a good move. Uh, in light of Sadie's tweet this evening, 
you know, she has referenced hearing, you know, do this, don't do this, donate, don't donate, pray, don't pray, what have you. And, you know, and, and I responded to her and said, you know, it, it's, you know, I felt the same way yesterday when all of this sort of erupting and, you know, after watching it over the course of a weekend, watching a small flame, you know, turn into a, a fucking inferno. Um, you know, I suggested that she follow her heart, you know, do what you can. You know, if you have questions, ask them, you know, try to educate yourself. If you feel like you don't have a frame of reference, uh, you know, I myself growing up had nothing but white friends. Uh, you know, I grew up in a very white town and it wasn't until I went to college that, you know, I really had any interaction with, with people who are black and, you know, it's not that I grew up, you know, hating them or anything. It's it's not that at all. I grew up around a lot of racism and I didn't understand it. I didn't understand why. And I think I'm, you know, pretty fortunate in not understanding it. I still don't fucking understand it, to be honest, other than the I don't know why you would look at somebody and judge them by the color of their skin. I don't get that. That's not me. That's not my blood. Um, I, I can't compute that. And I got a lot of friends who are different ethnicities. And the thought of them being denied the same freedoms that I enjoy, the same privileges that I had until, you know, in recent years, hadn't even considered to be a privilege. Or there's, you know, because then that's that in itself is white privilege. Uh, the thought that they can't enjoy those same things solely because they're from a different country or a different race is disgusting to me. That, that the fact that they can't enjoy those same things. <sighs> so, boy, this is a hell of a way to start the <laughs> podcast, guys. Very uh, said, though. Um, I, I, you you said so much that I, I think really echoes a lot of sentiments of you know people I've talked to whose opinion I respect and the opinion that you know I've tried myself to cultivate. You know that what really stuck out to me is you said I'm I'm scared, I'm sad, and I'm mad as hell. Those are very different emotions and. I felt each and every one of them very, very strongly in the last, you know, week, um, and sometimes all at once. And it's as as a man in my mid thirties, it's confusing. Um, it's tough to deal with. Uh, but that's exactly it. One of the things that I read that um, kind of stuck with me, and it might have actually been reposted in that same thread we're talking about. Uh, somebody had 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 likened, you know, supporting protesters uh to playing a musical instrument that you're not going to be good at it to uh, at first you've you've got to kind of get yourself out there and and try it uh and and not just sit in front of it and bang away but you've got to learn it and you said you know do your research try to discover what exactly it is that works um the the one thing that really sticks out to me is just you you have to use 
whatever platform you have. You know, I'm not going to pretend I have this great big following of, you know, 700 people or whatever, but staying silent is just, it's not an option. It's yeah. Pat, what do you think? Oh, I, I'm, I'm just echoing what you guys think. I, I came from a suburban town in, in Massachusetts. Like I grew up predominantly with Irish, Italians, and Portuguese. So that is the Portuguese part does roll under the people of color, but like, I, I don't know. I, I, I love most people. The only people I don't like and I'm very public about it is if someone's basically a bully or a racist. And yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know, man. I don't know if it's because, like, I grew up with parents that gave me good morals or I just I try to be a good person. And even if I wasn't a father, it would scare the shit out of me for what if I had a kid or not even that. You know what? I I have a best friend. This sounds probably stupid because I'm a white guy saying this. I have one of my best friends is a black guy and his two little sweet girls are are black. And I'm just like thinking they're it's they're such a nice family. Like they're the kinds of people you always want to hang out with. They're fun. There's no problems ever that we run into um, that I've experienced with him. But. I wonder what would happen in the future when they get older. Are they going to be targets? They are because they're women. Now throwing that they're colored, you know, it just scares. It scares me to think about things like that. And I'm very angry about it. And I just want to, I wish that the virus took out every piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) We're not that lucky. Um, And something else I just want to, you know, add to this, you know, before we, move on in conversation is uh something else that I, I tweeted at sadie is that you know i think the most important thing that we can do right now regardless of what social media platform you're on uh is to keep the information flowing uh, yes I, I think that we obviously you have to vet what news you share but I think right now, the inf- the videos and the firsthand accounts that are coming in off the street, especially of cops who are seen preparing, uh, preparing the means to stoke the flames of a protest, just to give them cause for retaliation. Uh, I saw something this morning, as a matter of fact, from Boston PD. We're preparing bricks to you know that they later use to smash windows um you know i i haven't had a chance to fact check that and i you know probably shouldn't have even mentioned it but you know that's something that you know i see and there's also the matter of you know seeing an undercover police officer walking down you know the side of a you know a, a, a storefront smashing windows and later gets identified as an undercover cop you know that's you're not seeing that reported on the news you're not seeing you're not hearing about that and unfortunately the mass populace they're not watching twitter they're looking at the you know the handful of headlines that twitter is 
showing them as this is what's trending right now. Well, no, they don't know to go into the, the hashtag and scroll down and actually look at what's coming in on a daily, you know, constant basis. And on a lot of, you know, on one hand, yeah, it's a lot of information overload, but at the same time, you know, that's, that's part of the price you're going to pay to be informed and it's heavy shit. I mean, I've had to turn away from it after, you know, I could only take so much, you know, I, I made it, you know, no, no secret that I struggle with my mental health, you know, anxiety, especially depression as well. And there's only so much I can take significantly less now that I'm older than when I, you know, from than 10 years ago. And which is kind of funny coming from a, from a fucking horror writer, but uh, you know, it, it's it's one thing to be making this shit up and seeing it, you know, seeing it down the street is another thing entirely happening to people you know. Um, so again, just to, before I get off track, uh, keep the information flowing while it, while it still is because. Uh, you can't trust what you're seeing on TV or what you're seeing on TV. Isn't the whole story. Uh, so. Absolutely. I agree with that. Um, it's kind of like what you learn in school. You only learn, you only learn uh, so much and then you become an adult. And if you do continue to learn um, and seek information, you say to yourself, what the fuck? Why didn't we learn about this or that? But uh, w- one last thing I want to say about the Boston protest. I won't name him, but a friend of mine, he was at that. He actually uh, left around eight or so and uh, everything was fine. Um, it was peaceful. They walked to the Boston Commons he walked home the friend that he was there with he uh he saw cops shooting rubber bullets mason people they called in the national guard because um they were breaking curfew so Mm -hmm. i always wanted to and i promise this is the last thing i say about before we go back before we go into horror but i always (laughs) will (laughs) this is real horror man so i guess this is gonna this is gonna inspire a lot of crazy shit i bet but um I always wanted to say, no, all cops aren't bad. I'm not saying they are, but there's definitely a systematic issue that I guess I was too uh, ignorant to realize, and that's scary. And uh, that's, I, I'm going to interject. Sorry, I'm sorry to cut you off. No, no, no that's I, fine. I would, I would say that's probably a symptom of our white privilege. You know, Why would you suspect it? Because you've never had to experience it. And in a lot of ways, you know, and this is a rare moment of me looking on the bright side of life. <laughs> I, I had this very, you know, call it pessimistic or cynical if you wish, but I, I, I kind of said the same thing when Trump got elected a few years back. At least this way, the stone's been turned over and we can see all the fucking maggots crawling underneath. Yeah, I agree with both points. Um, and... I fuck. I don't know, Brennan. Don't shoot me for this, but I hope that fucking guy doesn't get reelected. <laughs> I, why, why would I? <laughs> I don't know. Why would I shoot you for that? <laughs> uh, no, because I don't want to turn into a political thing. Because oh, okay. I don't want I don't want to rile up 
anyone. You know, no, I, I definitely respect you guys for bringing it up. And for the listeners, they did ask me if I, you know, didn't want to talk about this. And I, at first I was kind of like, eh, probably not because it just pisses me off. Uh, but you know what? It, it's at the end of the day, I think it's, you know, it's uncomfortable for a lot of people to face because it's like you said, it's, it's, it's systemic in our, you know, police forces. And it's also just inherent in our society. And the sooner we start confronting it, the sooner we can start figuring out how to fix it and heal from it. And that's going to take a long time. Unfortunately, I, I think, uh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And I, and, and, uh, sorry, Pat. Um, we've all been just absolutely immersed in this for the last week or so. Avoiding it seems just extremely disingenuous. And truth be told, Todd, even if you said, I'm not comfortable talking about it, I feel like at some point it would have come up anyway. And maybe who knows, but you're probably right. Uh, I think, Given what, you know, part of what Devil's Creek's about, I think, yeah, we definitely would have ended up talking about it to some extent. So, uh, so I guess I should, you know, I'm not going to apologize to any right wing extremists I might have offended because <laughs> all are fucking, you're fucking insane and evil. Um, my agent's going to love me for saying that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I would say that, you know, for all the other folks out there who are listening, who actually are empathetic to this, you know, situation that we find ourselves in and to the the Black Lives Matter cause and just the are out there trying to fight racism as a whole. Keep your eyes open. Don't look away because we we've all got to face this together. And I think. You know, that's the only way we can move forward. That's very well said. Um, and it has me thinking about something that um, and I'm this isn't original. This is not me coming up with some awesome way to look at life. But uh, as white men, it's straight white men. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm assuming anything i'm not going to ask questions but i guess just as white men i'll just cover that basis um it's our right to i mean not our right but it's our uh, our duty to start breaking old traditions of the super ugly toxic masculinity and of just talking about you know what i mean i i know what devil's creek's about it focuses on catholicism that's fine but there's certain traditions where that's kind of – I think people use that as a mask, and I think that characters in your book kind of do that too, where they use religion um, to act like a evil piece of shit. Uh, well, for, first of all, uh, sorry to correct you on your own show, but it's not specifically Catholicism. It's just uh, – in the book, it's just Christianity in general, but, you know, to a greater extent, it's really just, you know, fanaticism uh, wrapped up in religion. Religion is the tool. Uh, and you're right. You know, that's that's kind of a, 
an unexpected theme that started to come up while I was writing it. Um, and it's kind of funny because after I was done, I, I sent it to sent a, a draft of it to my mom and my dad. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I, my mom kind of asked me like, what's the, what's the gist of it? This was before I even had even considered writing a synopsis. And I said, you know, it's, it's about how extreme religion destroys a town in the span of a few days. And that's pretty much, you know, spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) Oops. You might want to, you might want to, you know, add a spoilers tag at the beginning of this uh just because i'm sure we're gonna you know get into that you know all of that stuff but um noted yeah uh uh, you know what uh (laughs) i think i know why i assumed it was catholicism again i come from massachusetts I'm i'm an irish kid i grew up catholic so like, like an asshole, I just assume anything that deals with Christ has to do with uh, Catholicism, and that's not the case. There's so no, many. No, no, it, it's totally fine. You know, I, I had no concept of Catholicism until after I left Kentucky. Oh uh, my god. I, I grew up. There was like one Catholic family in my small town, and that was it. You know, we had one Catholic family. We had one Mormon family. I don't think we had any, you know, Jewish families. I can't think of a, you know. I can't think of any time I ever heard of a, a synagogue or anything, even in the vicinity of, uh, you know, where I, I grew up. Um, so, you know, you're totally fine, man. I, I, I lived in a bubble, you know, and, you know, I think we growing up, especially in some of these small, small areas that aren't in massive, you know, around massive metropolitan centers with different cultures and whatnot, we all kind of grow up in bubbles. And, you know, to your point, I, I, I mean, everything I thought was just Baptist until, you know, I got out of college, moved to Pennsylvania and learned that there's all sorts of different, uh, different cults out there. <laughs> <laughs> they all got a different name. Yeah. I didn't, uh, I didn't move out of uh, Massachusetts until um, five years ago. I moved down to South Jersey with my wife. I love it down here. Uh, but the thing is, is um, it, it's weird. It's my, So my last name is McDonough. Uh, you could throw a rock and hit 50 of us up where I'm from. It's like Jones because like super Irish up there. But down here. Everybody asks me if I'm related to this one fucking guy named Brian McDonough. I've yet to meet him. I don't know who he is. <laughs> it's, uh, is is he in a band by any chance? Oh, yeah. He's with uh, Todd Kiesling. Uh, with Todd Kiesling, the bass player for Dystopia. <laughs> you know what? Fuck both those guys. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Like I've, I've done a little research on the, the other Todd Kiesling, and he seems like a cool guy, so I'm not going to say fuck him, but... Oh. I, I would it, say the people out there who kind of just send me messages from time to time asking if I'm this, if I'm him, do your fucking homework. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's all over your your little bios, what you are, uh, which it's very clear um, pretty much after one tweet. Uh, and just to comment on something before I forget, 
it's okay if you correct me. I assume most things I say is wrong. Um, so that's why I got Brennan here, just to kind of be my, like, he makes me look smart. So it's totally cool. Call me out every time. I'm okay with that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you got so, it. So the first question we usually ask guests, I would like wrong. to ask now. <laughs> <laughs> the Brennan, second question. <laughs> Brennan, your turn. <laughs> I don't know. Would it be uh, would it be weird to ask the first question thirty minutes in? What the no. fuck? Who cares? Um. <laughs> so the first question that we usually ask people is kind of what got them into horror in the first place. Whether it be you know what you first started watching or reading or even what kind of uh, inclined you to write later on. Cover as much as you want. Uh man, there there. I had a, a pretty deep well from which to draw from growing up uh so this actually requires a bit a little tiny bit of backstory so at my my parents got divorced when i was really really young uh my mom and i lived in the upstairs bedroom of my great grandmother's house for about three or four years before my mom remarried in that time my mom went back to night school and also had a job and during the day so she wasn't around a lot uh so to keep me occupied we had a vcr and there was we had a tv upstairs and the you know it's kind of like a little apartment and um we had this old vcr it was the kind that had was the top down loader you guys remember those am i yes. am i showing my age <laughs> Uh, well, no, I, no, I grew up with VHSs. Okay. Uh, okay. Do you also have a separate machine to rewind the VHS? No, no. This was an all-in-one unit. It was a rent-to-own from Curtis Mathis. Wait, wait. Can we please just pause on that? What the fuck? You needed a different machine? You didn't need one, and I'm. This is a this is a real stupid segue, so I'll make it quick. Um, you didn't need one, but supposedly, uh, if you always used the VCR itself to rewind, it cut years or time or whatever off how long your VCR would last. So uh, any place you could buy VHS from would sell these little devices. You pop the tape in, you close it, it rewinds it for you. And it was a cheap little machine, uh, but supposedly it saved, you know, uh, it, it made your VCR last longer. Yeah, uh, the 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 head the heads on the VCR would wear out. Uh, there toward the end of the VCR lifespan, you'd see like four head units, so it had you know I guess more durability. I don't know, but that's also <laughs> it would also ruin the tape. So you know you'd have this magnetic strip. You know it's like a film. You know it's like a film negative rolled up inside this cassette tape, and if you you know what? I'll get to this in a second because this actually ties into my little anecdote. <laughs> um, so uh, my mom, she, you know, she's not there a lot. Uh, my granny, uh, great grandmother, uh, my, my granny, you know, could only babysit so much. <laughs> so uh, to help facilitate the lack of a babysitter, um, I just so happened that my grandmother, my granny's daughter, uh, my grandmother worked for the only video rental store in my hometown called Showtime Video. 
So we got a discount on rentals and my mom would usually rent like a stack of movies and, you know, I'd have like two or three kids movies and then she'd have like, you know, two or three horror films. And the thing is, is that, you know, mom's not home yet. Granny's taking a nap because she's had enough of my shit. So I've already watched all my movies. So I'm going to pop in what mom rented. So I basically had like, you know, a couple hours of unsupervised time every day. And uh, so that's how I came to learn of Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and Evil Dead and Maximum Overdrive and scanners and, you know, Phantasm, all of those movies when I was about four. (laughs) (laughs) So I had my favorites Uh, to this day. Evil Dead 2 is probably my all time favorite horror film. Nice. Uh, So I had we rented a pair of movies so much that my mom actually had one of her friends who had another VCR. Uh, the thing is that you could basically take two VCRs at the time and you could record, you could input one from the other and you could record one cassette to a blank. And that's basically, you know how you would, you know, pirate movies and whatnot back in the day. And so we had rented these two movies so much that she decided to just, you know, buy a blank cassette and take take our VCR over to a friend's house and just record this, you know, these movies. So I had this single cassette that had uh, it had maximum overdrive. And then in the middle was Dirty Dancing for my mom. <laughs> <laughs> and then after Dirty Dancing was Evil Dead 2. Now, you could get about six hours on this tape. Well, I had that tape. I don't know. I'm sure it's still around at my parents' house somewhere. Uh, I remember having that tape until high school. Until, you know, DVDs were a thing. And I, you know, actually bought actual versions, you know, dedicated versions of these films. Um, but until then, you know, I would watch Maximum Overdrive, fast forward through Dirty Dancing, <laughs> and then watch Evil Dead 2. And I had done this so much that the entire section of Dirty Dancing was unwatchable <laughs> because the film was fucking ruined. And that that you know loops back around to what i was talking about if you fast forward it enough times it would damage the tape <laughs> so wow. uh i grew up knowing maximum overdrive and evil dead 2 by memory um i think i'm probably the only person who is a diehard fan of maximum overdrive even though it's an awful awful fucking movie <laughs> and it it uh, you know it's kind of weird because you know that was my first introduction to you know rock music because ACDC did the score and without realizing it until years later that was my first introduction to Stephen King because he wrote and directed it. Yeah. 
And, you know, on top of my mom kind of being a, a, uh, open door for horror films, this eventually led into also picking up the book she was reading when I was older. Uh, and, you know, she had a copy of the gunslinger by Stephen King. And, you know, that was my first King book. I graduated to King from reading R.L. Stein and everything. And, and I always gravitated toward the creepier books like Goosebumps and Benicula and, you know, the John Belair's books. And, you know, because they were along the same creepy lines as the movies that I grew up watching. And over time, you know, that kind of. I went from King to Kuntz uh, for a long time. I, I really only read like more transgressive stuff like uh, Chuck Palahniuk and whatnot. But when I finally started getting into my own writing, you know, there was always this weird ass element that would always come in somewhere. And, you know, it wasn't until shortly after college that I kind of had this, you know, wake up moment realizing that the you know stuff that i enjoy writing the most are these you know are horror stories so that's kind of how i got into horror uh, horror has always been a part of my life i mean it's without really even acknowledging it you know like going into college thinking i was going to be some you know literary writer when i came out even then i had posters on my dorm wall of you know hr you know geeker or geiger however you pronounce it you know his artwork from you know his his stuff which is pretty out there uh always freaked out my roommate (laughs) um you know stuff like that you know i had the i had posters for evil dead on my walls i had i had posters from the crow and texas chainsaw massacre and all that stuff uh so it's always been a part of my life even even if it wasn't the focus and uh yeah i mean that's that's kind of my my horror pedigree i guess i you know you can blame it all on my mother (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of familiar elements in there uh uh, gunslinger was was my first king as well um, actually, I just also I just bought uh, Benicula for my seven year old, and I am so excited to watch him dive into that pretty quick here. Um, not I can't leave out either. I'm very impressed at the way you did manage to tie your story back into the uh, rewinding and fast forwarding VHSs. That's that's a that's a solid storytelling ability. You should do this for a living. I tr- I'm trying. <laughs> Really, yeah. really though, I'm just uh, I'm just writing to pay the bill until a sweet accounting gig takes off. So <laughs> now H.R. Uh, Geiger, you mentioned him, and I I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, when it came out, the documentary titled uh, Dark Star, I think it came out right after he died. Did you happen to watch that? I haven't seen it. No. Oh, it's so fucking good. It's very interesting. It just breaks down. You know, basically who he is and how he was an inspiration. His artwork was an inspiration for uh, for Alien. And it's just I, I saw that there's a bar themed after his artwork that that that's my favorite artist. That dude's got like he's he's like unlike any other. You know, I, I, I back when I was in college, I 
would sometimes just like, you know, look at his website and look at his store. I guess he they he had a shop like over in Germany or wherever it is, uh, and he sold like these massive alien style chairs, and they were like black and glossy and like really tall backs, you know, just made out of fucking fiberglass or what have you. I don't know. They sold for like ten grand. Holy and shit! I had this I had this daydream of like you know. When I make it big, I'm going to buy one of those fucking chairs, and that's going to be what I write in. And now I'm just sitting on a something with lumbar support. But <laughs> you know. I just looked it up on eBay. It's actually selling for one. This is to be like some kind of reproduction. It's only 200 bucks, but holy shit, that looks nice. Oh, yeah? It's, a, it's, a, it's on eBay. I just looked up H.R. Geiger chair and (laughs) it's a big chair hey i'm a i'm a tall dude i know you are too it looks like it'd be a lot taller than the two of us um and it's got three skulls on the top yeah isn't that awesome i love it (laughs) i i think my wife would be uh mortified by it and you know what along those lines because i know you're is it fair to say you're at the very least a graphic designer? I don't know if I call you an artist. I don't know if you're going to, like, scoff at me or something. <laughs> I mean, aren't all writers artists? I mean, yes. You know, I, I agree. I, yes. No, I, I I dabble in graphic design. Uh, I do design work on the side. I really started doing it a lot more when I lost my job last year. Uh, and I still, still do design stuff uh, here and there. Uh, so yeah, sure. You can call me a graphic designer. <laughs> well, I asked because there's this one painting that when I was still living in Massachusetts, I went to. I love going to yard sales and thrift shops. You never know what kind of cool shit you'll see. And I saw this one painting, and it was like two bucks. I and it, I loved it. It kind of felt. I forget the name of the short story. There's this one that Stephen King wrote where this guy sees his painting. Um, I think it's in Everything's Eventual. I don't know if either one of you have read it, but it's basically the guy buys this painting um, somewhere in Massachusetts. His house is in New Hampshire, and um, he ends up getting home, and every time he looks at the painting at his house, it, it, it's of, a like, I think this guy, this mysterious guy in a car every time he looks at the painting goes away from it looks at it he's um the painting has gotten a little bit closer to his home like at one point he's over uh um the bridge in boston can't remember the name (laughs) brendan help me out that i got nothing for you all right anyways every time he looks at it he's closer and by the time uh he's at his driveway he starts hearing footsteps and i I think it implies that he's killed by it. Well, anyways, I I got this painting. It looks kind of like Kurt Cobain and um, the girl from the ring holding hands if they were on acid. And there's there's no artist signature. And I asked the guys about it, and they're like, oh, we don't know. It's some local, I think. So I've always been drawn to horror, and I've always written um, just because, like, that's what we do. And I just thought, like, 
okay, well, that's the perfect setup for horror story, so maybe I'll die. But I bring it up because I always wanted it above my writing desk. But my wife, she's she's into, like, serial killer documentaries, but she's not into, like, horror like we are. And she's like, yeah, fuck no, that can go in the basement. So <laughs> maybe one day I'll get it above my writing desk because we share an office. But <laughs> I just thought you'd appreciate that Yeah, story. I do appreciate that. Uh... <laughs> It's kind of uh, funny. A couple of years ago, uh, my wife usually would, you know, go to our local Goodwill just to, you know, have a wander, as she says, which usually means just buying a lot of knickknacks and stuff. <laughs> and she texted me a photo of this. Uh, it was a fucking painting of this small boy crying. And I'm like, she texted me. She's like, should I get it? I'm like, do you want demons? that's how you get demons and after like five minutes i reconsidered i'm like you know what if it's not if it's like less than five dollars buy it and because i can use that some some form or fashion and she went back to buy it and it was gone (laughs) somebody had snatched it up there's a story of that too first of all who buys that Second, who buys that that isn't us? <laughs> Somebody who clearly wants demons. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I would wonder about that, too. Um, on the lines of artwork, um, so I honestly don't know how long I've been friends with you on Facebook for. I know it's been a lot longer than we've, like, when I started joining the horror community, it was in 2013, and I really didn't start – I don't know why. I didn't really interact a whole lot until I became a reviewer last year. But okay. but I've seen, like – I've been friends with you for a while, and I, I saw you got a tattoo at Necronomicon. Um, I can't remember if it was from a Lovecraft book, but I thought it was Lovecraft-related. And now uh-huh. I'm on your, your website, and it looks like – I think it's the one that's on your website, the triangle. It's not. Uh, Damn. <laughs> the, no, it's okay. Uh, the the tattoo I got is the Star of Astaroth. Okay. Uh, not not necessarily a Lovecraftian thing. It kind of looks like one of Lovecraft, you know, Lovecraft's you know affiliated symbols, but uh, it's just a uh, it's a summoning symbol for the demon Astaroth. Uh, I did not get get this specifically because of the whole demonic shit. I don't really care about that. Uh, I got it because uh, my granny and I, my granny kind of raised me for, you know, early part of my life. We had a favorite movie together that we watched all the time. It was uh, bed knobs and broomsticks, uh, a Disney film. It's got Angela Lansbury. uh, And, uh, you know, it's about, it's actually kind of topical because it's about a woman who's a practicing witch who is trying to learn magic to help fight the Nazis in the war effort during World War II. And one of the things that they're const- they're trying to find in this movie is the Star of Astaroth so she can learn the spell of uh, what's called substitutionary locomotion which kind of brings like inanimate objects to life. And they basically like have this giant battle with these reanimated suits of armor from the museum against the Nazis. And it's pretty fucking awesome. Uh, 
so when I found out that the star of Astaroth you know, is years later, when I found out that it's a real thing, that it was, uh, I think it's in one of the Key of Solomon uh, texts, which is like full of, it's basically just like a grimoire full of summoning, you know, rituals and whatnot. Uh, you know, when I saw that, I decided, okay, I'm going to get that as a tattoo one day. And then a couple of years later, I ended up using that symbol in the logo for the band the Yellow Kings in my novella, The Final Reconciliation. Mm. And originally the plan was to get all four symbols down, you know, the in, inside of my left arm, you know, my forearm. And uh, for budgetary reasons, I only got the first one. But the plan is, is to get the other three, uh, you know, that'd be cool on that. Uh, so, yeah, cool. that's that's where that came from. It's uh, the Star of Astaroth. I, I, I like it, man. That's that's awesome. Um, I do wonder, though, because I don't I I have not seen you address this. Uh, maybe I just missed it. But are you a fan of Lovecraft? I assume you are, but I'm not certain. Uh, I'm a fan of his imagination. I'm a fan of his stories. I'm not a fan of his views. Uh, guy's definitely problematic, xenophobic. Uh, that said, I've got a reproduction of a painting of him that uh, Elizabeth Massey's husband, Courtney Skinner, painted. Uh, I've got it in my living room. I tell guests that it's my you know racist uncle Howard. Um, oh my god! And uh, you know, I I don't agree with you know his views and a lot of his stuff. A lot of his fiction deals with some really fucked up you know shit in terms of you know his racist you know ways. But at the same time, you know, I, I do respect the imagination. And a lot of what he created, like, you know, we wouldn't have the sort of, you know, we, we wouldn't have cosmic horror, not like we know it without Lovecraft. Uh, and I'm sure that there's going to be, you know, I might get backlash for saying that I appreciate his work. But, you know, look, you know, I just because I like his art doesn't mean I agree with, you know, his view, his agree with his viewpoint. Um, I know that seems to be a, a big point of contention in that, you know, subgenre. Uh, you know, I think that it was the World Fantasy Award that used to have his bust as the award, and now it's it's been changed. I could be wrong at which award uh, it is, but you know, definitely very problematic. Uh, that said, I mean, I, I do like his stories. Uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth is. I remember the first time I read that, and I was a teenager, completely blown away, uh, just from the the sheer suggestion of what's happening. Of course, then I, you know, in college reread it and discover all the xenophobia and you know the inbreeding and crossbreeding and you know all that shit and. You know, it's I think if you if you dig into it, you're going to find a lot of that ugly stuff that people don't like about Lovecraft. But, you know, if you take it on a surface level as just a horror story, uh, I think you're probably much better off. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Shadow of Innsmouth uh, from beyond. You know, I've got a 
idea for a novel that's probably going to tie into the the whole tilling gas machine concept from from beyond uh you know quick aside uh i don't know if it's in his his collection but uh scott r jones wrote a story called turbulence that was on pseudopod several years ago that's basically a, a tilling gas story in a really neat way uh so uh, definitely recommend you go check that out. It's called Turbulence. Scott R. Jones. Um, I'm, I'm going to subscribe to Pseudopod because actually um, uh, someone that I'm a big fan of, an editor, M.M. Chill, I know that she's got a lot to do with Pseudopod. So I've been meaning to actually start listening to that show. Yeah, but, definitely. Uh, so this is a terrible segue, but you have a blurb on your cover that I've been meaning to ask. I actually asked Ken McKinley on uh, our episode, and he specifically said, why don't you ask Todd? So I thought, okay, I'll ask Todd on, <laughs> on his episode. So just, right. to, just to read the uh, blurb um, so people can hear it. Devil's Creek belongs in the pantheon of the best small-town horror novels from Lovecraft to Charles Grant, Michael McDowell to King. It will haunt you for some time to come. A stunning work. That's by an author named Ed Kurtz. He's the author of The Rib From Which I Remake the World. He is also the author that was a victim of a shitty publisher, Cheesing, um, yep. that I don't – I think is pretty much no longer. And that's where I first heard of him. And I actually tried getting in touch with him a while ago, but I think he kind of went off of social media. And I was curious, like, why Ed Kurtz? I don't really know any more about him than those things. Uh, you know, a few reasons. I mean, when it comes to choosing a blurb that goes on the front, I mean, I... We had, you know, I had privately printed up, you know, uncorrected proofs and sent out for blurbs last year. Uh, so the book's been circulating for a while among, you know, folks just to, you know, with something like that, you kind of got to cast a wide net and see what comes in. But Ed was one of the ones specifically that I contacted first because I love his writing. He's a, he's a fantastic writer and he's a writer that isn't as well known as he should be um the rib from which i remake the world even though it's currently i guess it's out of print at this point because it was caught up in the the cheesing debacle uh you know that's a fantastic novel and that was my first uh experience reading his stuff and he's just an amazing writer i mean he can write he writes like he can write like gritty you know, pulp noir, you know, gritty horror stuff. And then he can also write, he wrote like a, a Western uh, last year, A Wind of Knives. Um, I haven't actually gotten around to reading that one yet, but he, he's very versatile. He wrote the uh, adaptation novel, novelization of The Ranger, which was a film uh, that was released on Shudder. Uh, he did the, the novelization of that. Uh, he's got a novella collection. Uh, I believe it's At the Mercy of Beasts, uh, Sawbones, Bleed. He's just an amazing fucking writer. And, you know, I send it anytime I send my stuff out to people, especially for blurs. I'm like, like, it's cool if you don't get, you know, don't get to it, you know, or you hate it. It's fine. 
And, you know, I sent it to him. I, at first I asked him, like, you know, would you be interested? And he said, of course. So I sent him a copy. And then a couple months later, he messages me out of the blue and, you know, gives me this amazing blurb. And I'm like, holy fucking shit. That's like, I can't, I can't really articulate what that meant to me. And, you know, like at uh, just a year before that, you know, I had talked to him briefly at the uh, the Merrimack Valley Halloween Book Festival uh, up in Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, I had been able to get a table for like half the day there. And he and his uh, his girlfriend, Gam, came up and we were talking and he he pointed to ugly little things my collection and said that he he read it and it was great stuff and you now that just meant the fucking world to me and just to hear that you know from somebody who i hold you know pretty high regard in terms of their writing and storytelling ability so you know when i got that blurb i'm like okay that's got to go on the cover I don't know where on the cover, but that's got to go on the cover. <laughs> and, you know, I it was a toss up, I think, between his and uh, John Langan's blur. But Langan had been on the cover of Other Little Things. And the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, you know, aside from the fact that it's Ed and it means a lot to me, he says some pretty amazing fucking stuff about my book there. And I think that deserves to be on the cover. So, brilliant! <laughs> That's a great answer. Thank you. And it is a really, it, it's a terrific blurb, like you said, because um, the the whole c- comparing it, uh, I hate to say it this way, but comparing it to other uh, kind of wonderful examples of that small town horror subgenre. Um, you know, that's that's one of the big takeaways that I've seen in a lot of early reviews, comparing it to uh, Salem's Lot and stuff like that. Um, so I have I have a question, a very selfish question uh, that, you know, the, the pod being on this podcast allows me to ask as a reader um, to do with the length of this book. Now, sure. most anybody who has seen, you know, early stuff on this book knows that. Uh, it's about 400 pages, and that one of the reasons it wound up with Silver Shamrock is because they said, fuck it, let's do it, 400 pages, let's go. Um, I know you had brought it to other publishers who wanted you to cut it. Um, so my question is, if you can tell me without spoiling it, what did they want you to cut? It doesn't... <laughs> It, it, you know, like, but anything that maybe could it, it could it could lose without affecting the overall narrative is what makes it that successful comparison to Salem's Lot for me that builds up the characters in this small town. So I'm curious what what would have been lost had you settled? Uh, what would have been lost? Um everything dealing with the town outside of the main characters, all of it. Okay. Uh, they wanted me to cut that down. Uh, someone in my, at the agency uh, where I'm represented 
wanted me to cut out the entire chapter with the character's motivation and completely rewrite, you know, his reasons for doing what he does, the town's history and everything. And they basically wanted me to cut it down to as close to a hundred thousand words as possible, which is, you know, your standard length novel. You know, you're looking at 80 to a hundred thousand words is what I would call a standard, you know, 250 to 300 pager. And, you know, to be fair, I mean, the original draft of that thing was monstrous. It was 176,000 words. Longest thing I've ever written. Probably the longest thing I will ever write. Uh, and there was a lot more of the things happening around town. And But you, know, you mentioned Salem's Lot. That absolutely was my inspiration as far as how that story is told. Uh, you know, I reread Salem's Lot in the early stages of writing Devil's Creek. And, you know, King does something in that book where he kind of, you know, these sections are called the lot. And there are these, you know, sometimes, you know, 10 or 12 subchapters of talking about just the different characters who live in the town and you never see them again. Yep. And the whole purpose of that. I think, I mean, I'm not friends with King. I don't know him personally. I, you know, so I can't just call him up and be like, yo, Steve, uh, you know, I don't, I, I think the purpose of those scenes is to build out the town as a character. And so I approach Devil's Creek the same way. I have a lot of, you know, had a lot of, uh, not even secondary characters, just, names like my my uh editor amelia when she did her first pass she created a a bible of sorts with every every uh proper noun all the names all the people who get mentioned i've still got it it's pages and pages long of just people places events that are mentioned and it's a good good index uh for me just to refer back because you know trying to remember who this person is and when I'm not dealing with them directly can kind of get a little crazy. Um, but yeah, there, there were all these scenes there. Uh, there were more scenes involving uh, kind of the local, not really the local transient, but kind of the local uh, crazy guy, uh, Skippy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot more involving him. Um, so there's a scene, I guess, toward the end of part two involving, uh, some nurses at the, uh, psychiatric ward of the local hospital and the head nurse, uh, I think her name's Maddie. Uh, there was like more scenes with her, uh, that kind of led up to a, you know, climactic, scenario involving her that kind of ties into everything that happens at the you know climax of the book uh so most of her scenes got cut uh i fought to keep the scenes with the uh the night dj and how she uh you know meets her fate uh they wanted me to cut that i fought to keep it 
the stuff with Ruth, the neighbor across from, you know, Jack's grandmother's house, you know, all that stuff with her. Uh, some of that did get cut. Uh, some of it I, I rewrote because, you know, there, there were some legitimate things, you know, the called out. And there were things that I was, you know, was willing to live with uh, to cut it down. But at the end of the day, you know, I trimmed it down to about 145,000 words, I think, was the final count. So I cut out 30,000 words. That's about 100 pages. Uh, And it still was too long. So that's when I finally said, you know what, if I cut this down anymore, it's going to completely change the book I wanted to write. So that's when I finally said, you know what? I'm going to start, let's start looking at the independent publishers because it's clear to me that none of the larger publishers that we were shopping to understood where it was coming from. So, you know, yeah, uh, had I acquiesced and chopped it down and turned it into a, you know, a 300 page thriller with some cosmic horror undertones, uh, yeah, I probably could have got a, a small advance out of that, and you know, my book in, you know, out by some imprint of a big five publisher, but that's not what I wanted. You know, I, I wanted to write this small town horror novel that stayed true to its roots, while also being modern. Did you go after the any of the big five, or was it strictly the imprints of the big five? And uh, I got a I, follow-up question. Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not at liberty to say where and to whom it was shopped. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. No. Uh, it was shopped around. Okay. Um, my follow-up question was, uh, was that your first time going outside of the indie uh, scene? Well, yeah. I mean, this was... I signed on with my agent in 2017, and that was already after I had already inked a deal with Crystal Lake Publishing. And, you know, I started writing Devil's Creek just a couple of months after signing on with her. So, you know, finished it in in early 2018, uh, had revised it, sent it off to her, revised it again. And again, uh, fortunately, I had, you know, was on medical leave at the time for my job. So I had time uh, to do that. And, uh, you know, it starts getting shopped around and, you know, the answer is no, no, no. I don't understand why this has to be longer than 100,000 words, blah, blah, blah. And you know, the question kept coming up or are you sure this is just horror? It can't be classified as something else just to make it an easier sell. And at that point I was just kind of throwing up my hands and saying, you know what? Fuck this, this, you know, it's a horror novel full stop. Yeah. And, you know, stop trying to turn it into something else. I'm not willing to compromise on this, on this book. You know, if it's some other story, that's fine. You know, I would be willing to play ball. But this book was by the time I got to the end of it and had said what I needed to say. 
I felt like if I compromised the vision that I had for it, that it would be disingenuous to the story and it would be cheating the reader. I, I agree with that. Um, you know, to me, especially after hearing the proposed uh, cuts to get it down to that 300 page sweet spot. I, I mean, I'm, I'm just imagining myself reading that and thinking, you know, cool story. We focus on Jack. Maybe we focus on Riley. Um, but that extra hundred pages, um, and for whatever reason, I can't put my finger on it. The first scene in the diner comes to mind when we just kind of circle around and get to know just a lot of the different people around town. Um, that's what takes it from me reading it on my Kindle and, you know, saying cool three, four stars to me reading it on my Kindle saying this is something that, you know, everybody should be reading. Everybody is going to want to check out uh, something that I'm going to grab at least the paperback. I've got, you know, thunderstorm uh, notifications up on my phone. And hope that <laughs> maybe just maybe uh, I can snag one of those like 50 copies they've got coming out uh, to me. That hundred pages takes this from a pretty good book to just something something that reads like uh you know i think you said that you started this in 2007 and wrapped it in 2019 something that reads like that passion project uh yeah i i guess i started kicking around the ideas for it in 07 um and i had a lot of stops and starts along the way i i it's kind of funny like uh, so the whole scene with the camp the campfire scene uh where uh, Dan Taswell is telling the story, his version of the story of what happened at Devil's Creek and Riley's watching and everything and uh, to the, you know, the, the youth, the church youth group um, that act, I actually wrote that first. Uh, that was probably the oldest piece of that story to survive the years. Um, there were other scenes that to this day, I cannot find the draft, the drafts, uh, they're lost in many computers, many hard drives over the years. Uh, there was a scene involving uh, a kid and his father fishing on the shores of, of Laurel Lake, and the kid hooking something that he thinks they're night fishing, and he hooks a, he, a fish, but when he reels it in, it's actually a, a skinned body. Um, I don't know what happened to that scene. Uh, a variation of the scene with uh, uh, Jesus, the bully, Riley's bully. Uh, I can't think his name. See, it's I've been so far apart from this book <laughs> <laughs> at this point, uh, living in another book uh, that I'm working on. That Jimmy of, Cord. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So the, the core <laughs> boy, uh, you know, he and his, uh, his lady, uh, of the hour are, you know, they go out for some little, you know, private time that scene of a, a different version of that scene from, uh, 2008, I think, uh, I had written the version of it where it, you know, it's Jacob himself who comes out to the car and he's singing a Frank Sinatra song, oddly enough. <laughs> 
which didn't really fit his character. But at the time, I didn't know who the fuck he was. Uh, and that's another thing. It's like, you know, I had the idea for it and I knew I wanted to write a story about my hometown because my hometown had enough of this weird shit in it that I could make something out of it. But every time I started to dig into it, I kind of like dip my my toe in the water and be like, no, I'm not ready yet. And I'd, you know, over the years, I would return to it. I'd write a little bit more. I'd write a little bit more. And then uh, 2017, signed with my agent. And after, you know, we kind of, you know, wait for the everything to settle after the release of the final reconciliation we have a business meeting and you know i i pitched to her two ideas and i said you know one is this the other is this you know which which do you think you would have an easier time shopping around and she picked what would eventually become devil's creek and i took those existing scenes i had written uh most of that first chapter uh, with introducing the grandparents and them driving down the road, you know, toward the, the compound in the woods uh, is mostly unchanged. Uh, that is from 2014. And the reason I stopped there is because I could not figure out how to deal with the different times. Because originally I was thinking, okay, I would be revealing what happened that night in snippets back and forth, but it didn't work. I couldn't find a way to make it, you know, jive for me as a writer. So, you know, I, I shelved it. And then when I went back to it, it was kind of like you know, three years later, I had this aha moment with fresh eyes and say, no, I'm not going to break this up. I'm going to tell this beginning to end and that's going to be how it starts. And then we're going to jump ahead, you know, 30 plus years. <clears throat> so that campfire scene, uh, was that always, you said that was the first thing you came up with. Was that always intended to be, um, part of something bigger as in like a novel or was that initially a short? Oh no, it was intended to be part of a novel. Um, cause I was at the time I was kind of, I guess you might say I was writing swatches trying to figure out the, the best, the best place to begin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I knew I wanted there to be like this camping scene. I knew there was going to be a scene with the grandparents, uh, I knew there would be a scene with, you know, Jack driving into town for the first, you know, first time in years. And, you know, I would kind of write a little bit on each one, figure out, eh, maybe that's not the right fit. And it's, it's funny because, you know, I've done this in the past with some of my, my novels where I'll write a scene and thinking that it goes here. And then farther along in the process, I'll be like, wait, that's all wrong, that the pacing's wrong, it needs to move over here, and then it jumps ahead, like, ten chapters. <laughs> <laughs> and it just, you know, takes minimal revision to get it, you know, bring it in line with everything else. And, you know, that's kind of how the, the campfire scene happened. I mean, I for, for a very small period of time in 2014, uh, I was 
kicking around the concept of starting there. And the first line was going to be so that you kids want to hear a scary story. And, you know, on one hand, I, I, I still kind of think that's a cool intro, but at the same time, it's Twilight Zone, the movie already did that. Um, so, you know, a variation, it was an earlier version. I mean, there, there was far less of the characterization you know, the back and forth. You didn't know who the person telling the story was or anything. All that stuff got developed, you know, when I finally dug in in earnest on uh, 2017. You know, that's a really good lesson for any uh, possible potential new writers that uh, I wish I heard earlier on because um, I got serious and write in in 2013 and I didn't know that lesson, which is don't set a timeline for a piece of work, piece of art that you're like, well, if it's not sold by this time, fuck it it's a trunk story because <laughs> yeah, i was under the impression for some dumbass reason that i'm writing this book even though it's my first one or my second or whatever and i'm like huh well i don't have an agent i don't have connections but fuck it if i don't sell it by this time i guess i'm not good enough um no uh, do you have a... any do you have any pieces of advice for like new writers besides that point that um you wish you heard early on in your career? Uh, I think first of all, that that's a common, I think that's a common trap that you fall into uh, thinking that you need to go by these standards and not, you know, this or this or this, I got to meet these, these goalposts along the way. And that's, that's not the case at all. I mean, if you, you write because you want to, you write because you love it. You enjoy it. It's in your blood. You like telling stories. And, you know, that's that's where I started. You know, I I I liked telling stories about the drawings that I would make, the paintings, the pieces of artwork that I made when I was younger. And to the extent that I would get frustrated when I didn't convey what I saw in my head on paper. And that's when I turned to writing as a different medium. Uh, to kind of paint the pictures that I see and try to demonstrate them to someone else with words. And that's, you kind of find your own way there. There's no, you know, obviously when I was younger, I tried to find an agent, you know, I, I all through college, I tried to find an agent. I tried, my goal was to find an agent by the time I graduated. That didn't fucking happen. Uh, I wanted to have a book deal by the time I was out of college so I could, you know, have this amazing writing career and have my dream job right out of college. And that just demonstrates how fucking stupid and naive I was. Um, so, you know, I, I, like I said, it, it's a it's a trap that I think every young writer is going to fall into because you're measuring yourself against everyone else. And you're measuring yourself against your idols. You know, you, you by this point, you know, Stephen King had published on writing that came out right as I was starting to take writing seriously in high school. And, you know, he's talking about sending out your stories and getting rejections and 
getting the agent after you have some publishing credits under your name and all this stuff. And it's all great advice. But the thing you also have to consider is, is that he was writing in a completely different time. He was getting his start, you know, in the 70s, in the late 60s, when there were actual magazines to buy that stuff. And, you know, you actually had to go buy a copy of Writer's Market to see what, you know, markets were actually buying, you know, stories and what agents were actively looking for, you know, concepts and what have you. And I think if I dug around enough, I would actually find a couple of the 2004, 2005 editions of Writer's Market. And the thing is, is I never used them because, you know, I felt ultimately felt that the time I would spend trying to get this one story published, I could write five more. So I did my own thing. And, you know, years later, here I am with, you know, several novels under my belt. I've got, you know, had story sales. Some of them have been in For the Love Markets. Some of them have been token payments. Some of them have been semi-pro rates. And a handful of them have been professional rates. I've got a special edition coming out. I've got, you know, all the stuff lined up. And I've got an agent. I mean, and I have the things that I never, I had given up on. I had given up getting an agent. The agent found me. I wasn't actively seeking it out. So I bring all of this up not to stroke my ego, but to just point out that, you know, I didn't have a clear direction either. I failed at those goalposts too until I woke up one day and realized, fuck those goalposts. I'm going to do this my way. So I self-published my first novel because I knew nobody was going to buy it because it doesn't fall into genre lines easily. Uh, And, you know, I kept at it. I wrote a sequel. I self-published that. Uh, I started writing short fiction, self-published those. Uh, That got picked up as a collection for, you know, for Crystal Lake. And from then on, when I finally gathered that confidence to realize, okay, people actually want to buy this stuff. That's when I started submitting. That's when I started, you know, writing more short fiction and putting it out there and submitting to open calls. And I did that for a period of years. Now I'm fortunate enough that I get invited to private calls. It doesn't always work out. Sometimes what I write isn't doesn't fit their vision, but it happens. And it really comes down to focusing on the writing first. You know, I tried to be I try to be a good storyteller and I try to be a better writer. If I can be a better writer, I can tell a better story. Um, and I feel like if you focus on your craft, if you focus on your love of doing what you're doing, if you're, you know, if you want it badly enough, if you're tenacious enough to keep at it, eventually you're going to get to where you 
want it to be, you know, a decade ago. And that's the thing. Another thing I would caution young writers on is that don't get ahead of yourself. This takes time. You know, this, uh, there are some writers out there who've been writing all their lives and they haven't sold a single piece of fiction. You know, does that say, what does that say about them? I don't know. You know, maybe they just haven't had the right story. Maybe they need to take a couple of classes. I, I can't say. The point is, is that you need to be in touch with why you love doing it. You know, no, and, and then just follow your own path. You know, the other things will fall into place. Don't write, you know, don't try to write a story just to get it published. Write a story because you want to write a fucking story. Write yeah. a story because you can't stop thinking about it, because you need to give these things, vo- these voices in your head an outlet because they won't leave you alone at night. You know, write your fucking story and then worry about where it's going to go after the fact. There have been too many times where a lot of my stories have found a home in anthologies and whatnot that, you know, I just submitted on a whim, not thinking that there's, you know, snow cones chance in hell. I mean, the scan lines thing that came up with dim shores earlier this year, I never in a million years thought that they would buy that story and it happened, but you know, I threw it out into the void and sometimes the void sends things back. (laughs) (laughs) But I know I realize I'm rambling a lot because there's so much, there's so much advice to give a young writer, all the young writers out there and, you know, take it or leave it. I mean, whatever rings true to you, then, you know, put it into practice. All I can say is to to follow your own path and don't lose sight of why you're doing it in the first place. Because you love to write. You love to tell stories. I don't think it's uh, incoherent rambling. It's rambling that's honestly, and I'm not kissing your ass, that is full of gold. Um, It's stuff that I would want to hear like seven years ago. It's stuff I still want to hear. I like hearing it. It's not just for new writers. I think it's also a good refresher. Um, uh, just to piggyback on one of your points, I had in my head that, hey, you know what? I want to be like Stephen King. Um, not anymore. I mean, it wasn't even because of the girl next door, but like honestly, I, I think I I want to be fucking Jack, Jack Ketchum because that guy is like one of the greatest writers in my eyes. But but I wanted to be like Stephen King, you know, famous, yeah. you know, prolific. Uh, you, I don't know about you, man. I can't write every day. Oh, I, I don't. Uh, I I don't. Uh, today, uh, nope, no, no bullshit. Uh, today is the first day I've written in two weeks. And do you keep uh, track of your word count, or does that just not matter? Uh, I keep track usually for my own own motivation. Like, okay, so I, I think I wrote maybe 500 words today, and I would consider that a good day. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've written thousands in a day. I've written just a couple of sentences in a day, and it honestly... I know a lot of 
a lot of writers out there, especially the more established ones, are going to argue that you got to write every day and you put your ass in the chair and do this, do this, don't do that. But, you know, uh, I write when I can. I write when I'm in the right headspace to write. Uh, are there times where I make myself write? Yeah, there are especially when I'm trying to meet a deadline because if there's something I want to submit to or I've promised somebody something by a certain date, I try to meet that date, you know, cause I don't want to, you know, I don't want to bail on, on a deadline. Um, but when I'm working on a, a lengthy project like this, you know, devil's Creek's a perfect example. I didn't write every day. Um, uh, some days I only wrote for an hour a day because that's the only time I had to write. Uh, usually my lunch breaks at work. Uh, a lot of Devil's Creek was written in an empty executive office uh, for at my former employer. I would go into the office at lunchtime, grab whatever lunch I brought for the day, and I would write through my lunch break. And that would be it till the next day. So sometimes I would write at night if I had time to do so. Uh, you know, there toward the end, I usually was writing more because I had a clearer idea of where I was going. Uh, earlier on, I tend to kind of feel my way. And, you know, sometimes I overwrite and it gets cut out. And that's fine. That's part of the process. But you know, usually around the halfway point when I start to see the light at the end of the tunnel and have an idea of how to get there, that's when I start writing more. But by hell no, I don't write every day. Uh, I think <laughs> I'd, I would probably that would probably ruin it for me, honestly. I mean, I, I try to write something that I, I started doing with my second novel uh, years ago was... I would try to write on the same day that I would work. So if I had, you know, if it was a weekday and I'm working, then I would try to write on my lunch break. And if I have time, write that evening after work and then take the weekend off. Yeah, you know, that's good. If I, had, if I had a day off from work, I probably wouldn't write unless unless I'm near the end and I just want to get it done. Uh, but, it, you know, I, I think it's important to give yourself a break. I think it's important to sometimes step away from the keyboard or the notepad. And if you're like me, just because you're not writing doesn't mean you're, you aren't writing in your head. Uh, you know, I'm always thinking about plot. I'm always thinking about characters. I'm thinking about, okay, what did I write today? How does it fit in? Does, do I need to go back and smooth things out? Did I forget something? Did I, you know, all that stuff's constantly running in my head. Uh, so even when I'm not actively writing new, new words, I'm still thinking about it. And that's yeah. a point that um, I didn't hear for years either that I wish I did. And now that I did, I see it all the time. I'm I'm pretty sure like recently um, Gabino and Glacis actually mentioned that too. Like writers always think about what their story. And I mean, in my opinion, we're neurotic about it, but I'm okay with that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of have to be neurotic to a great to a degree to do this <laughs> professionally. I mean, it, just to do it, even as a hobby, I think you have to be neurotic because, I mean, at the end of the day, you're sitting in a room talking to imaginary people in your head. Yeah. So you, you're asking them what to say, and then you're writing it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you put it like that. <laughs> And that's, um, that's that's how I would you know tell my signal my coworkers that at, when I was writing Devil's Creek is that I would tell them like well I'm gonna go talk to my imaginary friends for an hour or I'll be back later. <laughs> I wanted to talk about one more thing for Devil's Creek um, promotion wise. Sure. Uh, I know that Ken said that me and him talked about Devil's Creek. I don't know when he from the time he announced it to when I actually asked him about it. Um, I don't know how far that gap was, but I do know that he said he's given it a little bit extra time because he wants this to be a big one promotion-wise. Um, I've seen a lot of neat things. And ta- it's just taking – I'm not even talking about, like, my, my review platform. Just taking it out of the equation, like, there's been a lot of talk about Devil's Creek. There's been a lot of interesting um, different ways to promote it, uh, specifically the – trailer you made it's just and i meant it it's fucking killer um actually in fact i'll add that to my to the episode notes because i think everyone should watch that but um thank you absolutely how'd that come about uh well as with most things and out of desperation (laughs) (laughs) uh no it 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 came about because uh covid19 um I hadn't even given any thought to making a book trailer until all the events I had lined up to promote Devil's Creek started getting canceled and postponed. Uh, and then, you know, I had a realization uh, that, oh shit, my book comes out in a month. I need to shift gears and start focusing more on online promotion. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm an indie guy. I got my start in the self-publishing world, so I'm used to doing this shit myself anyway, or for as cheaply as possible. And so I started thinking about kind of like what I wanted it to look like. And uh, I emailed some friends, asked them if they'd be interested in, you know, contributing a voice recording. Told them not to worry about the quality because it's going to, you know, we can add some reverb and echo and make it sound epic. And then I just started, I spent like a week and a half scouring the uh, stock footage websites, looking for as much free photo, you know, video stock that I could find Uh, listening to free public domain bits of music. Um, I think total cost to make that trailer was about $30. Oh my god. I had to uh I had to increase my subscription to Adobe Cloud so that I could get access to Adobe Premiere to cut it all together. I used Audacity, which is a free audio audio software for the uh sound mastering uh, used Premiere to cut it all together and add the effects and everything. Um, used After Effects to create the int- the intro with the the uh, the, fl- the fire 
and um, Tony Rapino made the ending, uh, the ending with the sign and the, the birds flying around and stuff. He made that himself. Oh wow! Uh, for his uh, his reveal of the sculpture. Yep. Now that's kind of how the trailer happened. I mean, it, it happened over a period of about a week and a half of scrambling to do as much with as little as possible. And that is pretty much independent publishing promotion in a nutshell, friends. <laughs> yeah. And I just want to emphasize anyone that listens to this, watch that trailer in the episode notes. It's fucking great. I said it to Todd. I mean it. It is the best book trailer I've personally watched. And even if I, even if I didn't know Todd, I'd be like, okay, I'm buying this book. Thank you. Yeah, man. Todd, how did you get uh, hooked up with uh, Tony Rapino, and how did that sculpture that he made come about? Oh, so Tony and I have been friends for quite a while. Uh, I kind of got to know him through uh, doing a blog tour uh, for his first novel, Soundtrack to the End of the World, which is fucking phenomenal, and everyone should buy it. Uh my personal favorite zombie novel of all time. Just saying. Uh, I'm that down. Yeah, soundtrack to the end of the world. Anthony J. Rapino, check it out. Isn't that the cover? Sorry to interrupt, but didn't you make the cover for that? Uh, I made a cover of that just for funsies. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I got got to know him through there. He lives uh about an hour and a half north of where i live and we started you know hanging out we would go to the mahoning drive-in every summer for the last five plus years uh for their various horror events and uh we i decided to publish through my company precipice books i published his collection greetings from moon hill uh Back in 2016, we did a Kickstarter for it, uh, primarily as a way to combine his book and stories with his, uh, also his uh, side, you know, business of sculpting. He's an amazing sculptor, and uh, you know, we did the Kickstarter. It was beyond successful, and we were able to do this really, these really cool editions of Moon Hill. And he made a sculpted uh, stone figure from from the book, from one of the stories. So knowing him, seeing his uh, talent for sculpting, I kind of had that in mind when I drew, I sketched out the uh, the stone idol that is featured in Devil's Creek. Uh, I forget the Latin name, but uh, roughly translated it. It's a uh, void without a name. Uh, the stone idol is a important part of the book. And, you know, uh, I guess it was about a month ago. I approached him and said, Hey, you know, I know you haven't sculpted anything in a long time. Would you be interested in doing this? And, you know, you can say it's an officially licensed product, you, you know, just give me a cut of the profits and, you know, we'll call it even. And, uh, and he was all for it, and I am so excited to have this thing in hand because it looks phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, 
I think so. It officially went on up for pre-order yesterday. I think there's only like ten left. Uh, so they might be sold out by the time this uh, episode airs. Uh, but you can check out his stuff, uh, Candy Corn Apocalypse. That's uh, his name on Twitter. Uh, check out his store if you want. Uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of how I got to know Tony. You know, got. I basically made him do it. <laughs> As with most things related to creativity, I have to, you know, kind of hold his feet to the fire and tell him you're going to do this because you're a talented motherfucker and you're not going to, you know, hide away from the world. So, um, that <laughs> it sounds like you're talking about yourself. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> we have been, people have asked us if we're brothers. So, there you go. <laughs> Um, I was really curious about uh, a book that me and Brandon can't fucking wait for, uh, Midnight in the Pentagram. How um, I, I would assume Devil's Creek had something to do with how you got involved, but did maybe you sell your short story? Because I don't know when he actually made the call for this, but did he get interested in your short story first, or was it the novel? Uh, Okay, so... This goes back to last summer. He had already signed Devil's Creek, and I was seeing all the the announcements for Midnight in the Graveyard. So I, I shot him a message. I'm like, hey, <laughs> uh, do you have any open spots? If you do, would you be interested in you know in a story for me for this? And it just so happened that someone had that he had invited had just dropped out. Uh, so he offered, you know, me the chance to submit and, uh, the first story I sent him, he liked, but it didn't fit very well. And he said, I have something else in mind later on. If you would be interested in just, you know, kind of setting this aside for me. And I said, sure. So after that, I went off and I wrote holes in the fabric, which, you know, appears in Midnight in the Graveyard and is kind of like a bridging story between Final Reconciliation and Devil's Creek. Uh, kind of ties those two stories together because they take place in the same universe. And so after Midnight in the Graveyard is all said and done, and uh, you know, I, I checked in with him and I said, hey, did you want to still want that story? the first story that I sent you. And he said, yes. And that's it. <laughs> that's, that's kind of, that's, that's how it happened. I mean, I, I basically kind of shoehorned my way into one anthology and ended up in a roundabout way getting invited to another. Uh, so if writers always have multiple stories available, <laughs> Because <laughs> you never know when one might fit. Uh, and that's how I got into Midnight in the Pentagram. Um, the story that's in that is kind of Devil's Creek adjacent. There's no real reference to Devil's Creek, cause I re- although you'll find that the tone is very similar, because I, I wrote it during a break from working on that novel. Uh, and the, the story that's in it is... Um, it's called The Gods of Our Fathers. It's a cool so, title. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's also a 
cosmic-y sort of story dealing with, you know, pagan rites and old gods and how that clashes with modern-day fundamental Christianity. And there's also some pretty intense scenes, so there might be a trigger warning for that. So, yeah, that's... uh. That's pretty much it in a nutshell. I mean, I, you know, I contacted him not knowing if I had an opportunity or not, but it's always worth asking. Absolutely. Um, I know that you were going to a few different festivals, I think. Uh, I know for sure one of them was the Merrimack Book Festival in Haverhill um, that I believe is still slated for October. As far as I know. Uh, I am planning on being there as long as it's happening. Okay. Uh, as of right now, that's pretty much the only in-person event that's still on the table. Uh, Nikon got postponed. Scares the Care got postponed. Uh, and doing signing events at independent bookstores right now is kind of out of the question. So. Yeah, um, I asked because Brendan and I are planning on going there um there's actually a lot more people than i knew uh that are going to be there so. oh god have you ever been there <laughs> i've never been to a convention before oh wow okay so merrimack is insane because it takes place in a library it takes place at the the haverhill library and as a bookseller uh it's exhausting <laughs> it's like I was there uh, for a few hours uh, last year, and my first year I was there all day because uh, I had a table for half the day, and there was easily a thousand people that went through there. Wow. Uh, it's just nonstop. You got people coming by your tables. Uh, you got kids trick or treating. Uh, <laughs> people bring their kids to trick or treat. Um, and uh, you know, the year that I was there, uh, I had a table. Owen King was was there. He had a table. He was kind of the big the big draw, I think. Um, you know, it's kind of like a the who's who of New England horror writers is kind of there. I mean, Paul Tremblay was there last year. Uh, Grady Hendrix, you know, Chris Golden, Jim Moore, Brian Keane was there. Mary San Giovanni, Galeon, Bob Ford. Uh, Bracken McLeod, <laughs> you know, Charles Rutledge, uh, John Langan. Uh, first year I went, Laird Barron was there. It was cool to, to catch up with Laird, as always. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's a massive event in a very tiny space. <laughs> I I was really looking towards it. My first convention uh, – oh, I still am um, – my first convention that I was going to go to was going to be with my family at Scares of Care. Um, it was pretty awesome. I was going to, my kid's not even, he would have been eight months, and I was really pumped. And <laughs> now that that's not happening. Oh, and I was going to go to a book signing with Armand Rosamelia, Chuck Buddha. Oh, uh, Beers Hunter. and Fears. Yeah, man. I, I was so stoked. I was like, oh, cool. Like, I moved to Jersey. I didn't know of any writers in this state until like a year or two ago. And they're all horror writers. And not only that, but somehow like a, a, an hour drive to my to the west of me 
is like the mecca for horror writers. So I'm like, okay, shit's finally happened for me after five years. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, uh, <laughs> I know Armand's pulling together something virtual uh, for Beers and Fears this summer. Oh. Um, yeah, Beers and Fears is such an amazing concept. Like, you go to a brew pub and sell books to drunk people. <laughs> uh, I, I'm I'm being you know sarcastic, of course. I mean it, it's it is a, a great thing. Um, they've been very successful with it. I've been fortunate to be invited to that. Uh, Spellbound Brewery is usually kind of our go-to. I know we've done that for a couple of years. Um, and uh, I think it's Mount Holly where that is. I could be wrong. Uh, yeah, we, we did it last year. Um, J.C. Walsh's uh, first novel was officially released. And yeah, it was kind of like, yeah, it was his party, man. Like he, he had so many people show up to support him. And it was it was great. It was a great first event for a first time author. Uh you know, uh, Summer Cannon's gone to that. Uh, you know, Kenneth Kane dropped by. It's uh, it's really cool. It's a really neat idea. And even if some nights you sell a lot of books, some nights you don't. Either way, it's a fun time. Uh, yeah. Th- those guys are a riot to hang out with. Armand, Armand personally invited me, and I was like, why? And it turns out I've gotten to know him really well after that. Uh, and I had him on an episode that is going to air uh, this or next month. I can't remember. Turns out he's a pretty damn nice guy, too. He's funny as hell. Yeah. You know, Armand, Armand's a teddy bear, and he's a great guy. I love him to death. Don't you dare fucking tell him I said that. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he... And he and I hit it off pretty well. First time I met him was at Beers and Fears. Met him in person, anyway. I'd known him online for a while, but uh, met him in person. And next time you talk to him, ask him about the time I brought him a bag of dicks. (laughs) Because that's what Armand can do. He can eat a bag of dicks. (laughs) I'm uh, actually literally taking a note in my uh, notebook. Yeah. Ask him on about I, I don't know how that story ends, so yeah. <laughs> I love you, Armand. <laughs> um Oh, sorry, bag of dicks distract me. Okay, I got I got my next question. Happens I, to the best of us, Pat. <laughs> I wanted to ask one more thing about Merrimack Book Festival. There is a newer author that's from Haverhill. I'm not sure if you are aware of him. Mike uh Michael Clark, he's he was supposed to be there and have a table, I believe. Um, yeah, uh, patience of a dead man, right? Yeah, he's he's a guy that I could see you you two really getting along real well. You know, it's uh, it's funny. He he also came up in another podcast uh, chat I did with the Ink Heist crew. They also you know recommended his work, and I, I see a lot of people you know talking about it. I have not had an opportunity to to look into it because my TBR pile is bigger than, <laughs> bigger than Everest right now. Uh, but yeah, we're connected on Twitter. You know, he seems like a cool guy. Yeah, real nice guy. Um, I yeah, the trilogy third book just came out uh, recently. Brennan reads like uh, his name's The Flash. I read like my name is a uh, you know 
slowest sloth in the world. So he's finished the trilogy. I just finished book one, but it's really good. Don't feel bad, Patrick. I'm the same way. I'm a slow ass reader. <laughs> uh, um, so we're getting closer to our mark. I do have a few more questions if you're still available for like another 10 minutes. Absolutely. I'm here as long as you need me. Oh, sweet. Um, okay. <laughs> so since we're talking about TBR files, what are you reading right now? Uh, currently, I just started. Uh, well, I, I spend a lot of uh, time listening to audiobooks, uh, usually because I'm trying to multitask. Uh, today, since I just returned to my office job for the first time in three, almost three months, uh, and I've got a pretty lengthy commute. Uh, I started uh, listening to uh, Worse Angels by Laird Barron. Uh, it's the third book in his Isaiah Coleridge trilogy. Not, yep. not, you know, exactly horror, but, you know, Laird's got a, a way about his work that, you know, he makes it pretty, pretty fucking, you know, terrifying. Horror adjacent. Uh, yeah, horror adjacent. <laughs> uh, I'm, I've heard. I'm only like a couple of hours into it, but I've heard that this one is way more horror focused than the other two. That said, I've loved this fucking series. Uh, it's he's got the he's got the right voice and style for this, you know, hard boiled detective fiction, but it's also got his unique perspective. I mean, the guy's had an amazing life. Uh, you know, growing up in Alaska and everything and hearing him talk about it is an experience. It's incredible. Um, beyond that, uh, I just got, I could tell you what I have <laughs> recently. <laughs> uh, I just got a copy of red equinox by Douglas. Wynn. Uh, I got a copy of, uh, shit. I can't read it. Whisper in the Dark by Laurel Hightower. Oh, I got so a copy good. of uh, Sarah Reed's collection, Out of Water. Um, my copy, my contributor copy of the first uh, issue of Weird Whispers showed up, which has uh, stories by Gwendolyn Keist. Keist. I really got to ask her. <laughs> Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Time on a podcast that probably mispronounced and butchered her last name. I believe uh, they said when I watched the uh, streamed um, Stoker Awards, and I think they said Keist, but now I'm now I'm doubting even that. Um, look, look, nobody's ever gonna know. <laughs> there should be a story written about this, like the the woman with an unknown name. That's a terrible title. Just go with it. <laughs> Uh, so it's got her story and, uh, uh, the other guy's name's Kurt. You know, why don't I just get the fucking book? Hold on a second. Okay. <laughs> Brennan, now that Todd's gone, let's talk about him. He can't say, uh, Gwendolyn's name either. I know. I'm happy because like, I don't, I mean, I've talked to her, but. Kurt Fauber. What is it? Kurt Favre, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, F-A-W-V-E-R. I don't know it. You know, Brian Keene doesn't know her name either because he's messed it up too, so I don't feel <laughs> bad. No. Okay. Well, it wouldn't be uh, an episode of this podcast if we didn't uh, ask you very politely to uh, 
try your best to move Laurel Hightower's book way up your list. Oh, yes. I know. It's so fucking good. I know. Everybody fucking tells me this. And I've got the book. Laurel, I've got the book. I'm going to read it. I swear to God. Laurel's like, she's so, like, humble, but, like, I don't know if we exactly deserve her. Because she's just so, she's so fucking good. She's, like, commercially good, I would assume. I'm no genius in that area, but uh, she's a good horror writer. She's just a good writer. Well, I, I read the short story that was posted on Ink Heist that she wrote, and that was really powerful. I yeah. So, Laurel, I'm going to read your book soon. I promise. <laughs> I think she's one of the four people that listen to this podcast. So awesome. you're, you're in luck. <laughs> she's also a Kentucky girl. She is. Her, you, well-read beard, uh, drawn a blank on someone else. We're not all Kentucky girls, but okay. <laughs> That's not what I meant. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Kentucky is not Pennsylvania. You might have to stop at three. <laughs> Oh, that's actually what I wanted to ask uh, as far as horror writers go, or writers in general. Do you know a lot from Kentucky? Because I'm not even going to ask about PA. We've covered that. <laughs> uh, shit. Yes and no. Um, you know, Laurel, of course. Uh, Horror-wise, I think uh, I... Very well could be wrong. Uh, I want to say... Doesn't Lucy Snyder live in or around Kentucky? I could be wrong. Lucy, I apologize. Yeah. Todd's angry at his keyboard. Oh, it's a mechanical. It's right here under the microphone. (laughs) Hate to break it to you, man, but that's exactly what it sounded like when you were Googling earlier. Oh, shit. Okay, my bad. So Lucy Snyder lives in Kentucky. Actually, I, know I know she's gone to Imaginarium, which is in Louisville. Uh, but I don't know if she's actually, you know, Louisville could be also in its vicinity of Indiana, you know, Illinois, Ohio. Um, so I'm not certain. So let's just say Laurel for now. Okay. All right. That's fair. Her, uh, Twitter says that she's from Columbus, Ohio. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> and I managed to do that without banging on my keyboard. I'm, I'm just just for kicks. Didn't even um, hear you type. Really? Okay, yeah. cool. Um, did, she, she's a good writer, though, too. I mean, we could spotlight Ohio. <laughs> There's probably like a dozen Kentucky writer, horror writers that I'm completely blanking on right now. That's okay. They, they pro- No one listens to the show. It doesn't matter. <laughs> that's fair nobody from kentucky anyway not yet um i you know what i actually did want to ask you if you read um any nonfiction. uh currently in my queue uh until i was listening to this until laird's book came out uh i'll be gone in the dark about the uh golden state killer oh that's uh, interesting. yeah uh, that's a pretty intriguing story um it's kind of a story about the killer, but it's also a story about, uh, I can't remember her first name, uh, last name McNamara. She was married Michelle. to Pat Roswell. Yeah. She, she, <laughs> pa- she passed away like before the book was finished. 
Oh, wow. And what's crazy is that like her, her investigation actually led to them reopening that case. And they have, they, you know, they have, they, they captured a suspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, there's a documentary, I believe, set to air pretty yeah. soon here. HBO. H- yeah. yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, my, my wife loves the uh, true crime stuff. She had reposted uh, the the trailer for the documentary and Patton Oswalt liked it. And she was very, very excited about that. Notably, I don't think anybody, you know, that big has ever liked anything I've posted. So that's fair. <laughs> Which is why I was laughing in case you picked up on that. I'm not a, uh, I'm not a sick fuck. Uh, well, Brennan and I. Uh, our wives both like um, stuff about serial killers, but uh, Brennan's wife seems to be a uh, Rolodex with serial killers, uh, at least the stuff that he's told me. <laughs> you guys should have Mercedes Yardley on sometime and ask her about that. Dude, if she if she if she be willing to talk to me, yeah, fuck yeah. She, she is a she knows so much about Ted Bundy, it's fucking scary. Oh. <laughs> wow. Um, so I I was being a little selfish in a way with asking that question, and it, it, it completely went in a different direction. I had a suggestion that I feel like you'd like. Um, it's a short book. It's in audio, too, I believe. It's by Neil deGrasse Tyson. It came out three years ago called Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. Um, the reason why I think you'd like it, and anyone else that's interested in you don't even have to be necessarily interested in astrophysics. It just literally talks about the creation of the world. And after you read so many pages, it, it says it, it gives a length of time. It's like a, a tenth of like a nanosecond. And with how much shit happened in like the Big Bang Theory, after reading that book, even though it's meant for the layman, I'm like, I feel like a fucking idiot. But this was interesting. And I think it gave me some ideas for future stories. Nice. That's cool. God bless scientists and, you know, doctors and stuff that can write uh, in, in a way that appeals to the layman. The one that always uh, strikes me is Oliver Sacks. I don't know if anybody if you guys know who Oliver Sacks is, but he was a, a doctor mostly dealing with uh, psychology and mental health. And when he wrote a book, uh, it, it, it didn't feel like um you were reading a dissertation or anything like that. It was just very down to earth, but very informative as well. And I can always get behind stuff like that. Absolutely. Um, Brennan, what are you reading? Um, I am, I am reading probably the least amount of books I ever do at one time, which I think is three. Um, I I'm reading, uh, V Castro's Maria, the wanted, uh, I'm reading, Matt Hayward's short story collection, uh, Various States of Decay. Mm. Um, and I'll just put in real quick, he has a book coming out on the 11th, which is a couple days after, before this airs, um, called Those Below the Treehouse. And it is just fantastic. Um, I Everybody should get that one. And it, I got to the end of that, and even though I had a million things that I should pick up first... I had to pick up another one of his books. Um, and I'm about to start The Troublesome Amputee, which is a collection of poems by John Edward Lawson, who works with uh, Raw, Raw, Raw Dog Screaming. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's he, that's a pretty damn nice guy right there, too. Yeah, exactly what, you know, kind of 
encouraged me to pick it up because it's it's bizarro, which is not something I always uh, gravitate towards. But just the 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 man uh, kind of you know inspired me to say I'm going to give this collection a go. Definitely. How about you, Pat? Um, yeah. So um, not sure how this makes me look, but I promise you I'm two thirds through the way. I am finishing up Todd Keeslin's Devil's Creek, and <laughs> <laughs> so uh, real bad luck, podcasters. If you don't finish your guest book, don't it's a good do thing that. I didn't talk about the ending <laughs> when he was dead the whole time. <laughs> I promise you, I'm just a slow reader. I'm an asshole for not finishing it, but. After I finish that, I am jumping into V Castro's Hairspray and Switchblades, followed by Brian Keene's Ghoul for the first time, and then Robert Ford and Matt Hayward's A Penny for Your Thoughts. Uh, that book is excellent. I keep hearing that. And Lady Luck, we're going to actually spotlight them next, and we can't, we cannot wait. Um, that first book sounds amazing. Everyone is talking very highly about it. You know, I picked that up after Scares That Care last year and breezed through it in a couple of nights. I never read that fast. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like it's super snappy. Brennan talks very highly of it, too, and uh, I take what he has to say to heart about books. Um, I would like to know if you are comfortable with talking about future books that you are writing or plan to write or short stories. Sure. Uh so I guess it was early last year I signed a deal with Bloodshot Books. Uh, it was a big secret for a while because I wanted to just kind of get, you know, work on it, you know, on my own time and pace. Uh, but basically we revealed a big secret through Nightworms earlier this year. Uh my first two novels, uh, which are books one and two of a trilogy that was never finished, um, A Life Transparent and The Liminal Man, are being reprinted through Bloodshot Books. And uh, they're going to be expanded, revised editions um, with a new afterward uh, by myself. Uh, it's going to have like a three, kind of like a, a multi-part essay. Um, and so those are getting released, uh, over the course of next year. And I'm currently in the final quarter of the long awaited conclusion of that trilogy. Uh, it's been slow going since the pandemic hit just because of various anxiety related issues. It's kind of hard to justify, working on a book when your own mortality is being, you know, up for grabs. That's yeah. fair. <laughs> uh, it just doesn't seem like to be as important in the scheme of things when that's, you know, you're facing that every day. But uh, so the final novel uh, titled Non-Entity is uh, slated to be released uh, probably late next year. Um so I'm closing in on the final chapters right now. It's you know taking some time, but I'm getting there. Uh, and that's been a long time coming because I initially started it in 2013. And 
went through uh, a massive depression and got really fed up with it and ultimately walked away from it and said I would publicly I would never finish it. Uh, so I kind of shifted gears there. But um, it's all it, it's the final book in what I call the monochrome trilogy. Uh, the monochrome stories are not what I would call straight up horror like Devil's Creek. Uh, they're kind of a little, you know, a mishmash of everything. They're a thriller, they're suspense, they're, you know, um, slipstream fiction, they're horror fiction. It's, if I had to classify it as something, I would call it metaphysical horror or maybe existential horror. Um, uh, it's about a guy who uh, lives a pretty mundane life and wakes up one day to discover that he's physically vanishing. And he's basically slipping into an alternate, uh, well, parallel reality called the monochrome. Uh, so it that's kind of the, the start. Uh, I've had some people can, you know, liken it to uh, if Stephen King wrote The Matrix. Oh my god! Uh, I want to read that. So, uh, how did you make that comparison? <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, you know, deals a lot with. There's more of a philosophical subtext to it. Uh, definitely deals with a lot of existential questions, and it's. And I, I was talking to the the guys on this is horror a couple of weeks ago and they they really threw me a curveball and asked about you know they dug deep into that like i wasn't expecting it because nobody really knows those books um and uh you know it's it seems like each part of that story is something that i've had to write after going through a period of my life so it's way more personal than a lot of my stuff is. Uh, you know, I tend to cut pretty deep when it comes to writing about the main character, Donovan Candle. And I'm very eager to be done with it. <laughs> Todd, mentioned um, slipstream fiction. What's uh, I don't think I've ever heard that term before. It, What's that? Honestly, it, it's, it's a pretty loose term. It's kind of what... Back in when I was in college, slipstream is what I heard, you know, as a, used as a classification for the stuff that Stephen Graham Jones wrote at the time. Uh, slipstream being it kind of, you know, treads the water between several different genres. There's no real classification for it. That's how I've always interpreted it. I don't hear it passed around all that much anymore uh but you know at the time when i was writing it and i wrote the first book originally in 2006 into 2007 uh you know that was still a thing i don't think it's a thing all that you know all that much anymore um but yeah that's kind of the i guess it would be another another form of weird fiction I would say because weird fiction isn't always horror. Uh, you know, it's sometimes just it kind of crosses genre boundaries and hasn't un- leaves the reader with an unsettling feeling. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, go ahead. 
I think I would be lazy and just call Stephen Graham Jones genre Stephen Graham Jones. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, I think that me and Brennan would love to have you on longer, but I, I really don't know what to talk about anymore at this point, man. But besides well, rambling yeah. on about random topics. Not okay. to undercut your re-release, but uh, if, if there are any readers out there who uh, – I stumbled across this earlier – who can't wait for the re-release to pick up their copy of A Life Transparent, they can get it for only $989. There you go. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you'd be reading an older version of it. So, yay? <laughs> Yo, you? <laughs> so, so you get $1,000 and you, you, you hook them for the updated version. So that's that's a win win. What a bunch of fucking scalpers. I mean, really, <laughs> that really is that the, the, there's um, there's a paperback and I, I, I thought I saw a hardcover. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, there the was a hardcover for a while. But nine eighty nine was the low number on that one. The other number was higher. So they start wow. at nine eighty nine. <laughs> that's wow. you know what todd though that's got to be pretty cool to say hey here's a book i wrote and someone is asking almost a thousand dollars for it look you can <laughs> i don't know who these people are that are selling these books but you know they're it's not even signed <laughs> like, you know you take a book out of print and suddenly anybody who has a copy of it, they're either going to try to sell it for pennies to get rid of it, or they're going to jack the price up and try to get some sucker to buy it. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, the, what is it? The devil's Creek. I don't know if he actually had a title to it, Brennan, for those that don't know, Brennan, uh, is a musician. He, uh, sang a cover that went along with devil's Creek. Um, Todd, I know, I said maybe I remixed it so it sounded demonic. It would be the intro. I'm only bringing this up for listeners that have not read the book yet. Me and Brennan talked. It would make more sense if we have it in the outro uh, after. uh, I don't know if you've listened to the show yet, but Laurel Hightower uh, actually does a voiceover for it and was perfect for that. But there's space in after that where I'm going to have the little remix just just as a little bonus for anyone that um, is intrigued to buy the book or someone that already read it and is a fan. So I'm only explaining that because it might not make sense for anyone that hasn't read it yet. (laughs) Why why there's going to be some weird ass music in about 45 seconds. And also Todd is the creator of the show's logo. He is an awesome graphic designer. So look for him if you are looking for awesome graphic design work. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, Where can people follow you? You can follow me on Twitter at Todd underscore Keesling. That's K-E-I-S-L-I-N-G. I know a lot of people transpose the E and the I sometimes. <laughs> uh, my website, uh, ToddKeesling.com. Uh, be sure to sign up for my newsletter because Facebook fucking sucks, and I can't trust <laughs> it to communicate anything to people. Uh, usually, if you want to connect with me, Twitter's probably your best bet. I'm also on Instagram at Todd Keesling. And, you know... It's June 2nd as we're recording this. Devil's Creek comes out June 16th from Silver Shamrock Publishing. So if you like what you've heard, if you like uh, balls-to-the-wall horror and cosmic horror and small-town horror, that's the book for you. And Todd Keeslin isn't that fucking guy in the band, so don't ask him, motherfucker. Yeah, I'm not a goddamn bass player. (laughs) 
<laughs> but Brennan Nothing is, wrong with that, though. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> Seinfeld. I love it. Todd, it's been a pleasure. I've been wanting to do this for a while. Thank you so much, man. And I would love to do this again. Sure. Happy to. Yep. And, I, and I've got to add in that, you know, we, we ran past the two hour mark, but the first 20, 25 minutes, uh, I, I'm really glad we had that conversation. I feel I feel better for it. And Todd, I feel like you had a lot of really excellent things to say that I'm afraid are still going to be pertinent in the two we, in two weeks when this airs. Yeah, I think you're right. Unfortunately, um, that'll be pertinent. That is No, I think it was a good, good uh, conversation to have. And I, I looking back on it, I think it's one I needed to have. So thank you guys for the venue. That's awesome. Thank you for uh, imposing that on us. I hope that was the right word. If not, I'm sorry. I'm not that smart. Uh, Oddly enough, it works. (laughs) 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 All right, guys. Thank you, Brennan. And thank you, Todd Kiesland. And thank you to everyone that stuck around for the two-hour and 13-minute show. We appreciate it. And please buy Devil's Creek. It is an awesome book by an awesome graphic designer. (laughs) Thank you. Have a nice night, guys. You too. All right.